Section 17 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 17. Knights of Industry by Vsevolod Vladimirovich Krestovsky Part 2 4. The Captain of the Golden Band But Levsky had not time to nod his head in assent, when suddenly the outer door was pushed quickly open, and a tall man, well-built and fair-haired, stepped swiftly into the room. He wore a military uniform and gold-rimmed eyeglasses. The company turned their faces toward him, in startled surprise, but no one moved. All continued to stand in close order round the table. "'Health to you, Eaglets, honourable men of Vilna. What are you up to? What are you busy at?' cried the newcomer, swiftly approaching the table and taking the chair that Pacomius Borisovitch had just been knocked out of. "'What is all this?' he continued, with one hand seizing the vial of colourless liquid, and with the other— the photograph of the college assessor's widow. "'So this is hydrochloric acid for erasing ink. Very good. And this is a photo. So we are fabricating passports. Very fine. Business is business. Hey, witnesses!' And the fair-haired man whistled sharply. From the outer door appeared two faces, set on shoulders of formidable proportions. The red-headed man silently went up to the newcomer and fiercely seized him by the collar. At the same moment, the rest seized chairs or logs or bars to defend themselves. The fair-haired man, meanwhile, not in the least changing his expression of cool self-confidence, quickly slipped his hands into his pockets and pulled out a pair of small double-barreled pistols. In the profound silence in which this scene took place, they could distinctly hear the click of the hammers as he cocked them. He raised his right hand, and pointed the muzzle at the breast of his opponent. The red-headed man let go his collar, and glancing contemptuously at him, with an expression of hate and wrath, silently stepped aside. "'How much must we pay?' he asked sullenly. "'Oh, ho, that's better. You should have begun by asking that,' answered the newcomer, settling himself comfortably on his chair, and toying with his pistols. "'How much do you earn?' "'We get little enough, just five roubles,' answered the red-headed man. "'That's too little. I need a great deal more. "'But you are lying, brother. "'You would not stir for less than twenty roubles.' "'Thanks for the compliment,' interrupted Prokomius Borisovitch. "'The fair-haired man nodded to him satirically. "'I need a lot more,' he repeated firmly and impressively. "'And if you don't give me at least twenty-five roubles, "'I'll denounce you this very minute to the police.' and you see I have my witnesses ready. Sergei Antonitch! Mr. Kovroff! Have mercy on us! Where can we get so much from? I tell you, as in the presence of the Creator, there are ten of us, as you see, and there are three of you, and I, Yuzich and Gretka, deserve double shares, added Pacomius Borisovitch persuasively. Gretka deserves nothing at all for catching me by the throat, decided Sergei Antonitch Kovroff. Mr. Kovroff, began Pacomius again, you and I are gentlemen. What? 
"'What did you say?' Kovrov contemptuously interrupted him. "'You put yourself on my level. Ha! 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 No, brother. I am still in the Tsar's service, and wear my honour with my uniform. I, brother, have never stained myself with theft or crime, heaven be praised. But what are you?' Hm, "'In the Golden Band, who is its captain?' muttered Gretka angrily, half to himself. "'Who is its captain?' "'I am. I, Lieutenant Sergei Antonitch Kovrov, of the Chernovarsky Dragoons. Do you hear? I am captain of the Golden Band,' he said proudly and haughtily, scrutinizing the company with his confident gaze. "'And you haven't yet got as far as the Golden Band because you are cowards.' "'Chuprov,' he cried to one of his men, "'go and take the mask off Finch, or the poor boy will suffocate, and untie his arms.' and give him a good crack on the head to teach him to watch better. The mask that Kovrov employed on such occasions was nothing but a piece of oilcloth cut the size of a person's face, and smeared on one side with a thick paste. Kovrov's boys employed this instrument with wonderful dexterity. One of them generally stole up behind the unconscious victim and skillfully slapped the mask in his face. The victim at once became dumb and blind, and panted from lack of breath. At the same time, if necessary, his hands were tied behind him, and he was leisurely robbed, or held, as the case might be. The Golden Band was formed in the middle of the thirties, when the first Nicholas had been about ten years on the throne. Its first founders were three Polish nobles. It was never distinguished by the number of its members, but every one of them could honestly call himself an accomplished knave, never stopping at anything that stood in the way of a job. The present head of the band was Lieutenant Kovrov, who was a thorough-paced rascal, in the full sense of the word. Daring, brave, self-confident, he also possessed a handsome presence, good manners, and the worldly finish known as education. Before the members of the Golden Band, and especially before Kovrov, the small rascal stood in fear and trembling. He had his secret agents everywhere— following every move of the crooks quietly but pertinaciously. At the moment when some big job was being pulled off, Kovrov suddenly appeared unexpectedly with some of his boys, and demanded a contribution, threatening instantly to inform the police if he did not get it, and the rogues, in order to keep him quiet, had to give him whatever share of their plunder he graciously deigned to indicate. Acting with extraordinary skill and acumen in all his undertakings, he always managed so that not a shadow of suspicion could fall on himself, and so he got a double share of the plunder, rubbing the honest folk and the rogues at the same time. Kovrov escaped the contempt of the crooks because he did things on such a big scale, and embarked with his golden band on the most desperate and dangerous enterprises that the rest of rogedom did not even dare to consider. The rogues, whatever their rank, have a great respect for daring, skill, and force, and therefore they respected Kovrov, at the same time fearing and detesting him. "'Who are you getting that passport for?' he asked, calmly taking the paper from the table and slipping it into his pocket. Gretka nodded toward Budlevsky. "'Aha! For you, is it? Very glad to hear it,' said Kovrov, measuring him with his eyes. "'And so, gentlemen, twenty-five roubles, or good-bye.' to our happy meeting in the police court. Mr. Kovrov, 
allow me to speak to you as a man of honor. Pacomius Borisovitch again interrupted. We are only getting paid twenty roubles for the job. The whole gang will pledge their words of honor to that. Do you think we would lie to you and stain the honor of the gang for twenty measly roubles? That is business. That was well said. I love a good speech, and am always ready to respect it, remarked Sergey Antonitch approvingly. Very well, then see for yourself, went on the red-nosed Pacomius. See for yourself. If we give you everything, we are doing our work and not getting a kopeck. Let him pay, answered Kovrov, turning his eyes towards Bodlevsky. Bodlevsky took out his gold watch, his only inheritance from his father, and laid it down on the table before Kovrov, with the five roubles that remained. Kovrov again measured him with his eyes and smiled. "'You are a worthy young man,' he said. "'Give me your hand.' "'I see that you will go far.' And he warmly pressed the engraver's hand. "'But you must know for the future,' he added in a friendly but impressive way, "'that I never take anything but money when I am dealing with these fellows.' "'Ho, oh, you,' he went on, turning to the company, "'someone go to uncle's and get cash for this watch.' Tell him to pay conscientiously at least two-thirds of what it is worth. It is a good watch. It would cost sixty roubles to buy. And have a bottle of champagne got ready for me at the bar, quick. And if you don't, it will be the worse for you. He called after the departing usage, who came back a few minutes later, and gave Kavrov forty roubles. Kavrov counted them, and put twenty in his pocket, returning the remainder in silence, but with a gentlemanly smile to Bodlevsky. "'Fair exchange is no robbery,' he said, giving Bodlevsky the passport of the college assessor's widow. "'Now that old rascal Pacomius may get to work.' "'What is there to do?' laughed Pacomius. "'The passport will do very well. So let us have a little glass, and then a little game of cards. "'We are going to know each other better. I like your face.' "'So I hope we shall make friends,' said Kovrov, again shaking hands with Podlevsky. "'Now let us go and have some wine. "'You will tell me over our glasses what you want the passport for, "'and on account of your frankness about the watch, I am well disposed to you. "'Lieutenant Sergei Kovrov gives you his word of honour on that. "'I can also be magnanimous,' he concluded, "'and the new friends, accompanied by the whole gang, went out to the large hall.' There began a scene of revelry that lasted till long after midnight. Bodlevsky, feeling his side pocket to see if the passport was still there, at last left the hall, bewildered, as though under a spell. He felt a kind of gloomy satisfaction. He was possessed by this satisfaction, by the uncertainty of what Natasha could have thought out, and by the conviction that his first crime had already been committed. All these feelings lay like lead on his heart, while in his ears resounded the wild songs of the cave. 5. THE KEYS OF THE OLD PRINCESS It was nine o'clock in the evening. Natasha lit the night lamp in the bedroom of the old Princess Chechevinsky, and went silently into the dressing-room to prepare the soothing powders which the doctors had prescribed for her, before going to sleep. The old princess was still very weak, Although her periods of unconsciousness had not returned, she was still subject to paroxysms of hysteria. At times she sank into forgetfulness, 
then started nervously, sometimes trembling in every limb. The thought of the blow of her daughter's flight never left her for a moment. Natasha had just taken the place of the day-nurse. It was her turn to wait on the patient until midnight. Silence always reigned in the house of the princess, and now that she was ill the silence was intensified tenfold. Everyone walked on tiptoe, and spoke in whispers, afraid even of coughing or of clinking a teaspoon on the sideboard. The doorbells were tied in towels, and the whole street in front of the house was thickly strewn with straw. At ten the household was already dispersed, and preparing for sleep. Only the nurse sat silently at the head of the old lady's bed. Pouring out half a glass of water, Natasha sprinkled the powder in it, and took from the medicine chest a vial with a yellowish liquid. It was chloral. Looking carefully round, she slowly brought the lip of the vial down to the edge of the glass, and let ten drops fall into it. "'That will be enough,' she said to herself, and smiled. Her face, as always, was coldly quiet, and not the slightest shade of any feeling was visible on it at that moment. Natasha propped the old lady up with her arm. She drank the medicine given to her, and lay down again, and in a few minutes the chloral began to have its effect. With an occasional convulsive movement of her lower lip, she sank into a deep and heavy sleep. Natasha watched her face, following the symptoms of unconsciousness, and when she was convinced that sleep had finally taken complete possession of her, and that for several hours the old woman was deprived of the power to hear anything or to wake up, she slowly moved her chair nearer the bedstead, and without taking her quietly observant eyes from the old woman's face, slowly slipped her hand under the lower pillow. Moving forward with the utmost care, not more than an inch or so at a time, her hand stopped instantly, as soon as there was the slightest nervous movement of the old woman's face, on which Natasha's eyes were fixed immovably. But the old woman slept profoundly, and the hand again moved forward half an inch or so under the pillow. About half an hour passed, and the girl's eyes were still fastened on the sleeping face, and her hand was still slipping forward under the pillow, moving occasionally a little to one side and feeling about for something. Natasha's expression was in the highest degree quiet and concentrated, but under this quietness was at the same time concealed something else, which gave the impression that if, which heaven forbid, the old woman should at that moment awake, the other free hand would instantly seize her by the throat. At last the finger-ends felt something hard. That is it, thought Natasha, and she held her breath. In a moment, seizing its treasure, her hand began quietly to withdraw. Ten minutes more passed, and Natasha finally drew out a little bag of various colored silks, in which the old princess always kept her keys, and from which she never parted, carrying it by day in her pocket, and by night keeping it under her pillow. One of the keys was an ordinary one, that of her wardrobe. The other was smaller and finely made. It was the key of her strong-box. About an hour later, the same keys, in the same order, and with the same precautions, found their way back to their accustomed place, under the old lady's pillow. Natasha carefully wiped the glass with her handkerchief, 
in order that not the least odor of chloral might remain in it, and with her usual stillness sat out the remaining hours of her watch. 6. Revenged The old princess awoke at one o'clock the next day. The doctor was very pleased at her long and sound sleep, the like of which the old lady had not enjoyed since her first collapse, and which, in his view, was certain to presage a turn for the better. The princess had long ago formed a habit of looking over her financial documents, and verifying the accounts of income and expenditure. This deep-seated habit, which had become a second nature, did not leave her, now she was ill. At any rate, every morning, as soon as consciousness and tranquillity returned to her, she took out the key of her wardrobe, ordered the strong box to be brought to her, and, sending the day-nurse out of the room, gave herself up in solitude to her beloved occupation, which had, by this time, become something like a childish amusement. She drew out her bank securities, signed and unsigned, now admiring the coloured engravings on them, now sorting and rearranging them, fingering the packets to feel their thickness, counting them over, and several thousands in banknotes, kept in the house in case of need, and finally carefully replaced them in the strong box. The girl, recalled to the bedroom by the sound of the bell, restored the strong box to its former place, and the old princess, after this amusement, felt herself for some time quiet and happy. The nurses had the opportunity to get pretty well used to this foible, so that the daily examination of the strong box seemed to them a part of the order of things, something consecrated by custom. After taking her medicine, and having her hands and face wiped with a towel moistened with toilet water, the princess ordered certain prayers to be read out to her, or the chapter of the gospel appointed for the day, and then received her son. From the time of her illness, that is, from the day when she signed the will making him her sole heir, he had laid it on himself, as a not altogether pleasant duty, to put in an appearance for five minutes in his mother's room, where he showed himself a dutiful son, by never mentioning his sister, but asking tenderly after his mother's health, and finally, with a deep sigh, gently kissing her hand, taking his departure forthwith, to sup with some actress or to meet his companions in a wine-shop. When he soon went away, the old lady, as was her habit, ordered her strong box to be brought, and sent the nurse out of the room. It was a very handsome box of ebony, with beautiful inlaid work. The key clinked in the lock, and the spring lid sprang up, and the eyes of the old princess became set in their sockets, full of bewilderment and terror. Twenty-four thousand roubles in bills, which she herself, with her own hands, had yesterday laid on the top of the other securities, were no longer in the strong box. All the unsigned bank securities were also gone. The securities, in the name of her daughter Anna, had likewise disappeared. There remained only the signed securities, in the name of the old princess and her son, and a few shares of stock. In the place of all that was gone, there lay a note directed to Princess Chechevinsky. The old lady's fingers trembled so that for a long time she could not unfold this paper. Her staring eyes wandered hither and thither, as if she had lost her senses. At last she managed somehow to unfold the note and began to read. You cursed me, forced me to flee, 
and unjustly deprived me of my inheritance. I am taking my money by force. You may inform the police, but when you read this note, I myself, and he who carried out this act by my directions, will have left St. Petersburg forever. Your daughter, Princess Anna Jejevinsky. The old lady's hands did not fall at her sides, but shifted about on her lap as if they did not belong to her. Her wandering, senseless eyes stopped their movements, and in them suddenly appeared an expression of deep meaning. The old princess made a terrible, superhuman effort to recover her presence of mind and regain command over herself. A single faint groan broke from her breast, and her teeth chattered. She began to look about the room for a light, but the lamp had been extinguished. The dull gray daylight, filtering through the Venetian blinds, sufficiently lit the room. Then the old lady, with a strange, irregular movement, crushed the note together in her hand, placed it in her mouth, and with a convulsive movement of her jaws, chewed it, trying to swallow it as quickly as possible. A minute passed, and the note had disappeared. The old princess closed the strong box, and rang for the day-nurse. Giving her the usual order in a quiet voice, she had still strength enough to support herself on her elbow, and watch the nurse closing the wardrobe, and then to put the little bag with the keys back under her pillow, in its accustomed place. Then she again ordered the nurse to go. When, two hours later, the doctor coming for the third time, wished to see his patient and entered her bedroom, he found only the old woman's lifeless body. The blow had been too much. The daughter of the ancient and ever-honorable line of Chechevinsky, a fugitive and a thief. Natasha had had her revenge. End of section 17 Recording by Katie Riley January 2011